Hey folks, welcome to episode 15 of the Healthynomics podcast. Keeping with our theme of running, I've got what I think is a must listen for any half marathon or marathon runner. Today we're talking fueling with Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Trent is an innovation and research lead at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific in my hometown of Victoria, BC. Married to Canadian Olympic 1500 meter runner Hilary Stellingworth, Trent is a former track and field athlete at Cornell University where he ran middle distance races. He's worked with numerous Olympic track and field athletes and elite rowers. And before his position with the Canadian Sport Institute, Trent worked in Switzerland as an exercise physiologist with the Nestle Power Bar Research Center. In today's podcast, we talk about why marathon fueling doesn't get the attention it deserves, what distance do runners need to pay attention to fueling, the specific ingredients runners should be looking for in their mid-race fuel to optimize their performance, how hydration fits into the fueling equation, how many times a runner should aim to practice his or her fueling before their target race, tips to practice your fueling like the pros do, the rule of 15 for marathon fueling, how to train your body to better utilize fat as energy and boost your confidence during those last few kilometers or miles of a marathon, and different hypotheses as to why Kenyan and Ethiopian marathon runners dominate the marathon distance. The show notes for this episode are over at healthynomics.com slash 15. Lastly, if you want a simple, inexpensive tool to help you nail your fueling, check out my iPhone app, Fuel My Run, over at www.fuelmyrunapp.com. With that, let's go talk to Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Enjoy. Hi, Trent. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, that's great. No problem. Uh, I know there's uh, a lot of runners out there that are going to get a ton of useful information uh, from our chat today, and I myself uh, am also excited. So why don't we start with you giving us a bit of uh, background on who you are, um, where you grew up, where you studied, and what you're up to today? Yeah, sure. No problem. So I, I grew up near London, Ontario in a small town and uh, was fortunate enough to be a decently fast high school runner and, and earned a scholarship to uh, Cornell University, which is in Ithaca, New York. And while at Cornell, I majored in nutrition um, and minored in exercise uh, science uh, while being on the varsity cross country and track and field team. So I was, I was mainly a middle distance runner, the 800 and 1500, um, but also ran some cross country for them. And then after that time, I kind of got into the uh, research bug and coaching bug and, and made my way back to uh, Canada to the University of Guelph, where um, I did uh, did my PhD there from 2000 to 2005. And at the same time, worked quite closely with the head coach there, um, Dave Scott Thomas and his group, um, the Guelph Griffin Varsity uh, Cross Country and Track and Field Program which uh, since the early 2000s has probably been the dominant university distance <clears throat> running distance program in Canada and won many, many CIs uh, cross-country titles and, and even a few indoor uh, track and field titles. So um, I did my coaching education and degrees, um, kind of school uh, national coaching program um, with Dave as my, Dave Scott Thomas as my master coach. And help coach the middle distance athletes while, while I was there. And then uh, my wife and I met during that time, uh, my current wife and um, uh, my only wife. And she, she, uh, she's an elite middle distance runner who um, has made, I think, four or five world championship teams and was an Olympic semifinalist in London uh, in 2012. That's amazing. 
in the women's 1500. We then moved to Europe and I worked, uh, worked as the actually research and development lead for, uh, for Power Bar in Switzerland for six years. And, and now we live in Victoria and I'm the um, lead of research here at the um, uh, Institute, our, our Olympic training here, the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. So <clears throat> in a short roundabout way, we've lived all over the place in many different countries and had lots of uh, uh, different work and cultural experiences. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, as I mentioned um, before we started recording here, I'm from Victoria as well. So uh, definitely know there's a big sort of running scene out there um, uh, and a lot of sort of the national teams training out there. So that's great. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what uh, which athletes do you work with primarily now? Are you working with a particular, like with athletics or other sports or... Yeah, so <clears throat> with my job at the Canadian Sport Institute, I'm... Um, the direct report for all the nutritionists, all the physiologists, and all the strength and conditioning coaches. Um, but then I specifically uh, work closely with athletics, so track and fields, and and work quite closely with rowing and triathlon. Um, but I help supervise staff that work across uh, all sorts of sports, from BMX to cycling to uh, swimming to um, snowboard um to women's soccer so we we service a lot of different types of sports and um but i'm primarily focused on on rowing and uh, track and field cool well that's actually where i wanted to focus our chat with today um is actually on fueling and then in particular fueling for the marathon uh so why don't we start there um from what i have read and and hear mostly uh fueling doesn't seem to get the attention it deserves um why, why do you think that's the case well I, I think it's one part of the puzzle and and there's no it probably doesn't get the attention it deserves because um you know i can design someone the best train or the best gives me fueling program on the planet but if they don't if they haven't picked their parents right so they don't have the right genetics and uh if they haven't put in the the right type of training then the fueling's only going to get them so far um but it is an important aspect uh it depends on the race the type of situation how long it is the type of athlete but getting your hydration and your carbohydrate intake uh, protocol down and sorted and optimized um you know it, it can bring anyone from say two percent performance benefit all the way up to 10 or 15 percent depending on the situation and two percent doesn't sound like a lot but for an elite marathoner who runs two hours and 15 minutes um two percent improvement performance is two and a half minutes and that brings you from a 215 marathon which wouldn't qualify you for say a world championship into a situation where you're two and a half minutes quicker and you do qualify for a world championship so um for elites, uh, 2% improvement performance is, is massive. So it's one of those things as well that <clears throat> uh, compared to altitude training or maybe other supplements or um, uh, the training itself and, and the it, it's an add-on that maybe is an afterthought. And for a lot of athletes who just race the half marathon or, or under, you can probably get away with it and not need it. A really dialed in fueling pro program or protocol but as soon as the race distance gets over about 30 kilometers it it becomes kind of a requirement that you got to start to address and master and some people 
realize um, the the requirement uh, uh, quicker than others. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned again before we start recording, I had my own uh, sort of marathon fueling disaster. Um, uh, you know, going into my first uh, marathon in Dublin in 2008, I was very naive and just sort of took a training program off Runner's World and just thought I could do it, getting by on sort of my athletic ability. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, my second marathon a few years later, I paid a lot more attention to fueling, uh, largely due to the uh, podcast interview I listened with you and Coach Jay Johnson. And um, as we, as you mentioned, actually, you did the math quickly that I improved my performance, um, you know, close to twenty percent. Which, uh, you know, I attribute that a lot to fueling uh, myself. And obviously, I trained a bit differently and smarter, but um, I just felt better you know, those last 10 kilometers, mm -hmm. um, just because I had some, you know, fuel in the tank. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's the thing with the marathon is it's, uh, you know, uh, all the popular press right now talks about that we're born to run, but I would strongly suggest we, we aren't born to run marathons fast. Any one of us can get up and slowly walk, jog and, and get through a marathon tomorrow. be when it's 42 kilometers apart uh, as fast as possible is the, the human body actually wasn't that well designed to do that so um, we have limited glycogen fuel stores and when you run hard they they can be used up in 75 to 90 minutes and um, even the world-class athletes are right on the edge of using up and and going through all their storage uh, of glycogen and and they need a, a good fueling protocol as well to to optimize performance. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we um, talk a bit about, um, well, you mentioned a bit why the marathoners uh, need to fuel um, and the sort of uniqueness of, of the marathon race itself for the requirements to fuel. So let's talk a little bit about types of fuel. Um, and, and in that, you know, I know there's gels and there's, uh, sport drinks, uh, it's, there's lots of, and there's even natural foods or, uh, real foods, which people, um, use as well. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, what are the best types of fuel and, um, and the science that goes into developing these, um, more, I guess, synthetic, uh, if you will, types of fuel. Yeah, sure. No, no problem at all. I think there's been an explosion of research, uh, in this area over the last 10 years. And, Prior to that, it was the early 90s when a researcher down at, at Texas named Ed Coyle first started to do some studies examining just the intake of glucose during endurance as a way to, to mitigate fatigue and maintain blood sugar and allow um, extra fuel to be delivered to the muscles uh, during exercise. And in that seminal landmark study, uh, uh, basically what they did is they did a ride to exhaustion and on water the athletes lasted three hours and on carbohydrate they lasted four or four and a half hours. So that started to open the idea that taking in um, carbohydrate during exercise was was the way to go and a lot of studies followed after that with just using glucose um, and, pr and primarily that makes sense be uh, initially because glucose is the um, carbohydrate currency that the muscle uses primarily. So um, everything's converted in the body back to glucose. Uh, you can you can take protein during long duration exercise and the liver 
can, uh, through a bunch of processes called gluconeogenesis, produce glucose as well. But then about 10 years ago, um, uh, researcher Professor uh, Asker Eukendrup, uh, uh, based out of the UK, um, on some ideas around looking at different types of fuels, um, did a seminal paper where they looked at glucose and fructose blends and found out that basically you could use and absorb and deliver um, about 20 to 30 or even 40% more carbohydrate than glucose alone. And that primarily has to do with the fact that the intestine is the rate limiting site for absorption. And in the intestine, there's transporters for glucose and there's transporters for fructose and there's separate trans uh, transporters. So having a carbohydrate source or a type of carbohydrate that's multi-transportable that contains both glucose and fructose blends in uh, approximately a two to one ratio or even a one to one ratio uh, does result in, in more uptake of carbohydrate across the GI tract and more delivery to the muscle. And there's, you know, if you type in a eukendrup and it's it's Dutch, so it's eukendrop uh, um, and carbohydrate uh, and performance, you'll see probably 25 to 30 published research papers consistently showing this outcome. And it's analogous to the idea that if there's a whole bunch of people on a subway platform waiting for the train to come up, well, if you take just glucose, it's like having just one door on the subway train. So the people need to queue up and, and wait to get on on the subway train. And the subway train represents your, uh, your blood, um, the absorption across the intestine into the bloodstream. Well, you know, if you have a, if you, if you're then able to utilize a second transporter, um, for fructose, you're able to absorb, um, well, 20 to 40% more, um, carbohydrate during exercise. And there's a lot of indirect measures as well to suggest that since you're absorbing more, um, less of it is getting down into the lower intestine or lower colon, um, and less of it is later going to cause, um, or minimize issues with gastrointestinal discomfort or, or gut rot or some of these other things that, that happen. So, um, out of that research, almost every, almost every single major sports nutrition company, um, products are made out of glucose and fructose. Certainly Gatorade is, Power Bar is, um, and most of the products goo is, um, most of them utilize a glucose and fructose type blend. So, um, but you still need, not all of them do. So you should still read the label of what you're consuming and, and hopefully you see maltodextrin, which is glucose as well. That's another name for it. And fructose is the two, uh, two ingredients listed number one, two, or you might see sucrose and fructose. Okay. And okay. So those would be, um, you know, the key things to look for. Um, and now you said that's the, also the case with sports drinks as well. Like, um, you said, you mentioned Gatorade and I'm assuming others, um, use the same sort of formula. Yeah. So in short, there's actually been a, um, I'm actually on a whole bunch of these papers where my time at power bar, we did a whole series of studies looking at, um, glucose and fructose blends and sports drinks versus gels versus the actual power bar. And we also looked at it in both um, cyclists, because almost every study ever published just uses cyclists because it's easier to control. 
um, versus runners. And, and long story short is regardless of the form, all of them seem, as long as you're taking in the same amount, um, and that is actually harder to do with bars because of the chewing aspect, but as long as you're able to take in the same amount, all of, all of the different forms are utilized just as efficiently um, and are oxidized and, and, and utilized by the body just as uh, just the same. So obviously uh, under high intensity exercise situations, taking in fuel or carbohydrate in, in gel and liquid form is, is a lot easier than in, in bar form. Um, but conversely, during long training runs or if there's triathletes listening to this and you're on a long, long ride for three, four, five hours, then yeah, taking in some um, um, carbohydrate as real food or as a bar or, you know, as a banana is, is also, I would strongly encourage because it, it allows for, um, for a bit of a fullness feeling as well. Mm -hmm. Now, um, how does the, the hydration aspect fit in? Um, and also I want to ask too, I know the gels or, um, the carbohydrate is, uh, a bit more highly concentrated than you would get say from drinking Gatorade. So, um, I know most of them recommend that you consume with some water with them. Um, I guess primarily just so your, your stomach can handle them a bit better. Um, but how does how does hydration uh, fit into the equation as well, um, especially for a marathoner when you're trying to get all these carbs in? But I know also you've got to get some fluids in as well. No, absolutely. So um, we have to remember there's two sides to this equation, and that um, there's there's fuel or carbohydrate needs, and then there's also going to be fluid. And hydration needs and those are two separate and unique things that need to be um, addressed in a good fueling and hydration um, protocol or program so for example um, hydration needs are completely weather dependent so on a really cold race day your fluid needs are going to be a lot lower than if you're racing a marathon in Hawaii that makes sense the, the fluid requirements are, are very um, weather dependent. The fuel requirements, the carbohydrate requirements are much more or almost completely weather um, independent. So if it's a if it's a cold rainy day in Vancouver at a marathon, you're still going 42k and you still have carbohydrate requirements. And um, early on in my um, consulting career with with elite marathoner, um, we had a situation where uh, this one, this marathoner I, I was working with was a two hour and 45 minute shape and she ended up running about 258, dying over the last 12K on a cool rainy day in Vancouver. And it was basically, well, I wasn't thirsty, so I just didn't drink anything. And I was like, no, you're right. Your hydration requirements and needs were low, but you still had fuel and carbohydrate needs. And so um, it was a good learning for all of us and, and especially for me to, to stress practicing in, in goal and target weather and, um, and yeah, even on cool days, you still need to take in carbohydrate and some fluids. So that means that the ratio of carbohydrates to fluids will change depending on the type of weather you're going to race in. And most sports drinks are an 8% carbohydrate solution which is means 80 grams of carbohydrates per liter. That's 8%. Um, 
something like a Coca-Cola is a 12% carbohydrate solution or 120 grams of carbs per liter. Um, and a gel straight up is nearly 40 or 50% carbohydrate solution. So we generally recommend, or at least I do is, you know, with a gel, you're also taking in water at the same time. And, um, but I, I've had athletes depending on the race and the heat and the temperature, um, their fluid needs, their carbohydrate needs, um, be anywhere from, you know, a five or 6% carbohydrate solution, um, all the way up to nearly a 20% carbohydrate solution. Um, once you get over about 15% of a carbohydrate solution though, uh, there is an increased risk for, um, for some stomach upset and gastrointestinal issues because the carbohydrate ends up pretty concentrated, uh, um, in the stomach. So that's, you know, you're constantly playing with those things and practicing that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in, um, your podcast with Jay Johnson, um, the rule of 15, sort of a guideline does, um, can, can you explain, um, what that means? Yeah. Yeah. No problem at all. So ideally you're practicing, um, multiple times, eight, nine, 10 times before your target race. Um, something like getting about 15 grams of carbohydrate every 15 minutes in 150 uh, mLs of fluid. So 15, 15, and then 150. And if you're in that type of ballpark, um, you're going to do absolutely fine. And so 15 grams of carbs um, every 15 minutes is around 60 grams an hour. Um, it's about 600 milliliters of fluid an hour. And, and if you can get into that ballpark, you'll, you'll, most runners will do completely uh, fine with some of our athletes. We'll try and push them even more. Like if they handle that on a really hard training run, that's at their goal marathon pace in the goal marathon weather, um, or projected weather, we might push them and say, okay, next time let's try a little more or even a little more. Um, but at least getting that 15 grams, uh, every 15 minutes is ideal. Most gels, just to put this into perspective, are around 26 to 30 grams. So it's it's a half to three quarters of a gel um, every 15 minutes or so, and 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 that's a, is a really good um, easy type of rule to try and accomplish uh, in in practice first before race day. Um, that's great, um, and that brings sort of brings me to to my next question, and that's practicing fueling. Um, so for someone who's new to fueling or has experimented a little bit with fueling, what tips do you have, um, for, for a marathon runner, um, you know, looking to practice their fueling for an upcoming race sort of, you know, where do they start? Yeah, for sure. There's, um, there's definitely a few things that, that you can think about, um, think about doing. Um, the biggest thing is mimic, trying to mimicking the demands of what you're going to face on race day. So I've seen the mistake made before that, oh, you know, I practice fueling on just my long runs. And I say, well, how long's your long run? Oh, it was 30K and I went like 30 seconds per kilometer slower than goal race pace. I said, well, of course you didn't have GI problems in, in that type of effort because you haven't mimicked or the pace or the intensity of what you're going to have on race day. So I think that that's really important is you're going to have some key execution workouts, hopefully in your program with your coach or whatever program you're utilizing, where there's some long, hard days that are going to 
you know, maybe they're once a week or once every two weeks uh, that really mimic the demands of the race. And those are the days to also practice your fueling because those are the days that it's more stress on your body and your GI tract. And hopefully you can also practice your fueling in the target projected weather conditions because heat and humidity also can add increased stress to your gut. So if you train all winter and you have a really hot race day, not only will it slow you down, but it might increase the chance for, for stomach and GI upset as well. So that's number one. Number two is, um, yeah, in those key sessions and workouts, um, try to mimic what you will get in the race as well. So if there's aid tables, go on the website, find out what type of sports, um, nutrition provider is at the race. Is it power bar? Is it Gatorade? Is it goo and get those products, um, and practice with them and see if they agree with you. If they don't agree with you, you're going to have to carry your fuel with you on a fuel belt or something like that. Find out where the aid tables are. Um, are they every 5k? Are they every 7.5k? Are they every three miles? Try to find the um, profile of the course. Mimic that in your training. Find ways to then um, mimic the frequency of the aid tables at the marathon in your training. So if it's every 5k, for some people, for the elites, that's every 15 minutes. Uh, for the non-elites, um, it might be every 30 minutes. And if it's every 30 minutes, then between the aid stations to try and satisfy that rule of 15, you might need a fuel belt. So every 15 minutes, you might take a little bit of fluid and, and carbs from your fuel belt. And then at the 30 and 60 minute mark, theoretically, you might pass the 5k and 10k and then be able to use the, um, fuel that's provided by the um, race organizer on the course. So really think it out and really try and mimic it in practice. I'd also suggest trying um, trying it out on a few of these key workouts at least six or seven times um, so that you feel really comfortable with what you're going to do on race day. Uh, you might even write down um, what you consumed, um, how you felt, uh, how it, how it went so that you have a record of it next time around, you can, can write it down. So you develop a little bit, a little bit of a profile for yourself. And then lastly, um, one kilogram of body weight or one kilogram of fluid equals one liter. And so it's really easy to actually track your sweat rate by just measuring your body weight pre and post run in kilograms and subtracting out um, how much you actually drank. So if you have water bottles with uh, milliliters on the side of them, you, you can have a good sense of what you consume. So if you're 70 kilos at the start um, and you dropped all the way down to 70 or 65 kilos and you drank two liters, you've actually lost a net of seven liters of fluid over say a three or four hour run and you can figure out how much you sweat per hour and then give yourself a sense of that as well um in most runners um I, if they're feeling really well will only lose somewhere between two to sometimes eight eight percent for the elites of their body weight so if on a run as well you're you're not losing two percent you're probably over drinking 2% of your body weight um, as a percent loss on pre and post weights. If you're losing, you know, north of 6 or 7 or even 8% and 
and and you feel like you could consume some more fluids, try and do it. It's probably better that you lose only in, you know, a two to 5% range. Um, uh, there is evidence of some elites being able to, to lose more than that um, and, and dehydrate and, and still perform pretty well. But um, ideally, you're able to consume enough, um, enough fluids to not be that dehydrated. Um, but as I said, it is normal to lose at least 2% of your body weight. Uh, I think sometimes really um, new, newcomers to the sport are so aware of dehydration that they overdrink and they actually gain weight and uh, that can actually be bad for your health as well. So it's- And dangerous as well, is that, is that true? That's correct, it's called hypo, hyponatremia, which is when you overdrink and hypo means a dilution and natremia is the um, science term for salt. And so you actually flush out all your electrolytes and sodium and, uh, and it, it, yeah, there's actually been actually deaths from this. So, um, you know, I don't want to scare you for every 99 dehydrations, there's one hypo overhydration, but yeah, you, you should lose a little bit of weight and you should get a sense of what your sweat rate is and how much you lose on different types of weather conditions and, and practice that. And over time you, you collect a little information and you just, you, you basically do a little study on yourself and then you learn a lot about yourself and you'll come into the race feeling much more confident and ready to go with a fueling plan that works for you. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. I think I, I read somewhere, perhaps it was in your, another podcast with, uh, with you, but, um, that some of the best or the, the top marathoners in the world are actually in fact the most dehydrated at the finish, um, just due to the fact they're going so hard that they're they're amongst the most dehydrated um, finishers in the race. Is that true? Or yeah, so there was a, a very neat study that came out uh, in 2012, uh, and it was um, drinking behaviors of elite male runners during marathon, and it was the title of the paper. And um, First of all, uh, sweating is the way the human body dissipates heat. And so um, one mechanism by which you adapt to dissipating heat is an increased sweat rate. Uh, when, you, when it gets hot in the spring, your body actually adapts by increasing blood volume. Somewhere, some, for some people, up to 10%, your blood volume will increase due to heat acclimation. Um, that takes anywhere from... 10 to 15 days in the heat or, or in it, but you can start to get effects in five as little as five days. And then secondly, you actually increase your ability to sweat. What that does is it dissipates heat, but sweating also comes at an expense of, um, dehydration and dehydration primarily due to uh, decreasing blood volume, which is what causes your heart rate to go up higher in the heat because your, your heart tries to compensate by pumping quicker. <laughs> Um, so long story short is, is elite, the elite of the very elite, um, are so adapted and so good at dissipating heat. And that's part of the mechanism of why they're so elite that a lot of them, um, lose significant weight. So Haley Geber Selassie, the 26 time world record holder, um, in this paper, um, he had a 6% body weight loss during the race. Um, and it took him just over two hours, but, uh, he had a, um, over three liter an hour sweat rate, which is insanely high. Wow. Um, uh, the next highest person I've ever measured, um, 
actually was, uh, and he, he wrote about this in his blog, so I'll talk about it, is Rob Watson, one of the elite Canadian marathoners. And he was at 2.6 liters per hour um, at the Moscow World Champs in the heat uh, last summer. It was 26 or 27 Celsius there. And, and he did a good job in the heat and um, paced himself well. And I think he was in 50th place at the 5K and ended up 20, 20th place overall. And I truly do believe with all the monitoring we've done on him, part of that was because he can sweat nearly two and a half liters of fluid an hour. So, um, yeah, that's partly what makes these guys uh, so world-class is their ability to, to sweat so well. Wow, that's amazing. Um, just going back to sort of some of the um, um, practicing uh, tips you made, what about um, practicing, I guess, uh, fueling while you're running or do you recommend for people that run you know over a certain time that they actually slow down and prioritize their fueling over running through the station and perhaps not getting enough fuel at the aid station so hopefully um again if you're able to practice and satisfy that rule of 15 and you're able to mimic that in your training um and you're able to measure things out and you know it takes a little bit of math but it's simple math and at the end of the uh, end of the workout, you're like, okay, I had you know two gels an hour, which is about 60 grams, and I had that with about 600 milliliters of water. Okay, that's great. That's that's what I'm targeted for. And if you're able to satisfy that by by running through the aid station and not spilling a lot of the fluid or out of the cups or what have you, and you practice that, then that's great. That's no problem. Um, for some people, they have to slow down and walk to be able to do that. Um, with the elites, they all have marked bottles. And it's a lot easier for the elite to do that because they just grab their bottle off a table. It's usually a squeeze bottle with, a, with um, you know, a top on it with a, with a nipple and they can just suck um, it back. Suck it back and they can run with it. Like sometimes they grab it and they're sucking on it right away. I'm like, just take your time. You run with a bottle for a, a kilometer if you have to, and just take your time with it and get it down. And, um, and you know, for the for the masses, that's not so much the case. So, another thing I can say is when you get those little uh, cardboard cups, um, right away squeeze it almost in half. So it, um, and by squeezing it in half in your hand, you actually kind of close the top of the cup, and a lot less spills out. And then what you do is because you've squeezed it, you've actually made almost like a pouring device and it's like a little pitcher that um, uh, it, it's a lot easier to get a lot more fluid and carbohydrate that way out of those little uh, um, those little paper cups. That's so and, true. Yeah. And then the other thing is you might offset that um, by having, uh, you know, small a small fuel belt with, with the ability to... Um, take on uh, fluid and, and carbs that way as well. Yeah, I know that's so true. I've, uh, you know, I've used those cups and yeah, the top it's useless, but, um, I have tried squeezing at the top and it's a lot easier and you, you're able to take your time more because before, if you keep it open, I found, you know, if you don't gulp it down right away, it just starts spilling the more strides you take. So totally agree. And so that's, again, that's something you can, you can practice. Like if there's a, there's a key 5k loop in your neighborhood and it goes by your house and your friend or your partner, whoever is willing to come outside every 15 minutes and, and set out a little table or, or leave a little table out there and, 
you can practice it. Or maybe you have friends that are doing the marathon and, you know, one of you that week can set everything up so that you practice your fueling for that week. And, um, but grabbing stuff off a table and handling the paper cups is something that's really easy to practice. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. And I want to ask you, um, about training on an empty stomach or, or going out, you know, for your long run first thing in the morning when you've taken in no fuel and you've essentially been fasting since you eaten, um, last the night before. Um, and I know there's some thoughts that this helps you sort of utilize or better utilize your fat stores that you have. Is there any truth behind this? And is that a technique that you use with uh, your athletes? Yeah. So there's, uh, been a few research studies the last like five or six years that have examined the idea of, um, during training, not racing, training under low carbohydrate availability. And so one way to do that is to have dinner the night before, obviously just go to sleep like normal, get up the next morning and just have some water and a cup of coffee and head out the door for a run. And you've um, actually depleted um, some of your liver glycogen and you don't have as much fuel stores on board. And indeed, studies do show that you do force your body to use um, more fat as a fuel to run and uh, adapt your body um, to allow for more fat oxidation and fat metabolism. And so with our elites, uh, we'll purposely uh, do that in some of their training program, maybe once or twice a week. Um, it is very hard on the body. It is harder to recover from. Um, it doesn't always feel as pleasant. Um, you mentioned how you felt in your first marathon when you didn't fuel versus your second marathon when you did. Um, so it's not for the faint of heart. Um, but it might give you a little more bang for the training buck, especially if you're really busy and um, you don't have as much time to train or if you're trying to find other ways to you know, break through a training plateau, then, then this is something to think about or consider. But again, it's, I'm not talking about the Atkins diet here or low carbohydrate diet. I'm just talking about periodically um, training with low, uh, low carbohydrate availability. Yeah, I, I I tried that definitely in, um, in my last marathon last year uh, for two or three, you know, 20K plus runs. And, um, you know, it, you can get through those runs, but uh, as you say, like you're definitely, you're not going to be running the pace you're accustomed to when you're fueling, but um, I find they do help. And I find it helps a lot with your confidence too, just knowing the fact that you can run that distance um, having not taken in any fuel. No, that's, that's spot on. And wh- what it does is it, well, nothing ever mimics the last 10 or 12 K of a real marathon, let's be honest, but, um, it at least kind of gives you a teaser of what the last 10 or 12 K is going to feel like and exposures your body to that kind of really depleted feeling. And, um, but you don't need to run 30 K to get there. Yeah. Which is, which is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And so like, f- Again, the elites are, are a whole other breed. For them to do a 38 or 40K long run um, is no problem because it's only two hours, so they bounce out of it no problem. But for the non-elites, when you're doing a long run that's three or four hours in duration um, or more, it's really going to kick kick the snot out of you for a few days. And um, yeah, like, you know, here's a way to make training harder without having to to run more so to speak so in some ways it's like altitude training 
you go to altitude and you take something away and that something is oxygen or in this situation you train periodically and you take something away and that's being well fueled uh, having breakfast and having your sports drink all the way through um and it just makes makes training a little bit harder but it forces the body to adapt a bit more and again this is something i would only do you know 16 to maybe six weeks out from the marathon um in that last six to eight weeks you really want to transfer and switch over to practicing fueling primarily um and carbohydrate and, and everything we've talked about previously okay um now uh in respect to your time i just got sort of one last sort of area i want to uh, chat to you about and that's uh uh, are there any interesting breakthroughs from a science or research perspective that you think um, are being worked on or that will change the way that marathoners uh, are fueling? Um, anything that's happening right now that really sparks your interest? Um, I think I think overall, I, I don't I don't foresee any huge. Um, revolutionarily revolutionizing excuse me breakthroughs in in that front Um, instead what I see is a lot more emphasis and value being placed on sports nutrition and sports nutrition research so for example um, six years ago um, there were no studies on glucose and fructose blends or there are no studies on beetroot juice or there was less studies on how caffeine can improve performance or, you know, a, a host of other small things that might or might not work. The evidence still needs to come out on some of them. But I think what we're seeing here is that um, you can't have physiology without food and, and nutrition and substrate. And so there's a really tight link between um, physiological adaptation and how nutrition supports each of those rate limiting steps that that produce energy in the human body and so um certainly uh i wrote a piece uh actually with asker you can droop a few years back there was a um an academic uh letter to the editor about when when we're going to see the first sub two hour marathon and they they just talked the whole whole paper just talked about physiology and how oh you need a vo2 max of this and you need running economy of that and it spurred a whole host of something like 50 plus letters to the editor of people saying well wait a minute um what about uh, socioeconomic status like the desire that say african athletes have to get out of poverty that's going to drive help drive someone to sub two hours or we wrote a paper on what about sports nutrition and all the evidence there and Someone else wrote a paper on, um, there's no evidence for this, but the fact that a lot of the African nations are malnourished and you result with, um, end up with um, like a lot of the world-class male marathoners are five foot three, 120 pounds. Well, what? That it, that is amazing for the marathon because they don't have to carry extra body weight around the running course. Well, why is that? Well, part of it might be is because they were malnourished as kids. Well, that's interesting. It, it was it, it, you know it's a philosophy or I um, excuse me a hypothesis. And so it it's going to be this whole myriad of things that really drive performance to the um, to the next step. And uh, if you look at the massive explosion in in uh, marathon times the last five years so that i mean the world record a few years ago was 206 and now we're down to 203 
it's it's the fact that uh, as a Kenyan or Ethiopian, you can make a hundred and fifty thousand dollar payday in one race to win Boston or New York, plus all the appearance fees, plus all the shoe contracts that come with it, and that money is what's driving literally three to four hundred Kenyans to run three hundred k a week consistently um, as a route out of poverty for them, and um, it's inspirational. Um, I don't think Canadian or American or or westernized muscle is any different than Kenyan or Ethiopian muscle. It's just they have three or four hundred people who are willing willing to to do three hundred k a week. Um, we or, or close to three hundred. We only have maybe five or six guys willing to run north of two hundred k a week. So I think that's where you're going to see your big big jumps in performance in the coming years. Mm, that's that's very interesting. Um, just quickly, what about caffeine? Um, and not to take too much time, but I know. Um, a lot of the gels um, utilize caffeine, um, and I think the the cliff blocks that I certainly use. Um, I used the experiment with some caffeine, and I, um, you know, it's hard to say, but um, I, I would think it helps. And um, from what I've, I, from what I understand, it sort of helps delay sort of that muscle soreness you can get late in the race. Um, um, just can you talk about that quickly? Yeah, you bet. No problem. Um, Calf. Caffeine in the last few years is the mechanism is primarily due to interaction within the central nervous system, and caffeine is actually also in a lot of um, um, uh, pain medications. And so, what it does is it helps you focus and distract you and block some of the pain um, that's associated with very hard efforts such as long racing and. The evidence is is quite strong. There's meta-analysis to show that caffeine does improve um, racing and endurance performance. Um, it's not on the banned substance list by WADA. Um, athletes certainly utilize and strategize um, and use caffeine, whether it's you know a strategic cup of coffee or a caffeine pill um, or caffeine in gels, uh, certainly to help focus late in the race and minimize discomfort. Um, you're still in pain, but you're able to run a little bit faster at the same level of pain. Uh, so the recommendation there is to take um, approximately two to three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body weight, um, 30 to 60 minutes before the race. So for most people, that's 150 to 200 milligrams of caffeine. And then you might have 25 or 50 milligrams an hour after that um, throughout the race. Um, most cups of coffee, uh, large cups of coffee, say an Americano uh, at Starbucks, will provide 100 to 150 milligrams of caffeine. And, you know, that's the ballpark for, for most people of what they're looking for. So Okay. And, and how long does it take for that caffeine to get into the bloodstream? Yeah, it, it depends what's what's in the gut. If you have an empty stomach, 30 to 45 minutes, it peaks. It already starts to come into the bloodstream within 10 to 15 minutes. Um, if you've eaten something, um, it can be maybe 60 minutes because there's a little um, um, to peak. Um, and there's a little food in the gut that delays the emptying of the caffeine. Um, but yeah, the first rate of appearance of caffeine can be as quick as 10 to 15 minutes, but then the peak... Um, is uh, 45 to 60 minutes hour, uh, minutes later. So that's why I said take it 30 to 60 minutes um, before the start of the race. So with regards to caffeine, so if you are running uh, or looking to run a, a sort of a three-hour, 30-minute marathon, 
does it make sense then to take in some caffeine about um, you know two and a half hours into your race so that that caffeine's dripping into your blood sort of throughout that last hour of the race yeah with with most people I work with they'll, they'll take some 30 to 60 minutes before um, that two hundred and fifty to 200 milligram kind of range um, and then partway through they might include a couple of 50 milligram gels back to back at around the half marathon mark just to give them uh, another 100 milligram boost, uh, which w- which then suffices through the rest of the marathon. So um, you're certainly not going to sleep well after that, but it's also a one-off race, so uh, who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've trained that much. Um, sleep's not your priority there. Not um, after race, no. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Trent, um, in respect to your time, let's. Uh, why don't we end things there? Um, I just want to thank you very much for uh, for joining us today and having a chat um can you let us know where people can follow what you're up to or if they want to connect or or see what you're up to uh, online yeah no um for sure i um the best spot to follow me is on twitter so at t stellingworth is my twitter handle and um i'm usually sending out stuff all the time on new studies or comments on this study or that study and and that's probably the best spot Perfect. Well, listen, Trent, thanks very much, and uh, we wish you all the best. Great. Thank you very much.